You're listening to the Healthcare Innovators Podcast. Welcome to today's Healthcare Innovators Podcast. I'm Travis Good, your host for today's podcast, which features Dr. Sanjeev Arora. Dr. Arora is the Director of Project ECHO, which stands for Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes. He's also a tenured professor of medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center and has been involved in the management of viral hepatitis for more than 15 years. Dr. Aurora is not only the director of Project ECHO, but he uh, has also developed the model as a platform for service delivery, education, and evaluation. Today, we are going to talk about improving rural access to care and how telehealth is critical to that care. Telehealth or telemedicine has expanded exponentially in the past few years with more and more specialties using telehealth technologies to reach patients. This topic will be of interest to a broad section of our audience, so we're so glad you could make time for us today, Dr. Aurora. Welcome to the podcast. Travis, thank you for the opportunity. So, Dr. Aurora, I understand that Project Echo started because you personally were frustrated in seeing thousands of New Mexicans with hepatitis C who couldn't get uh, the treatment that they needed due to a lack of specialists. Uh, access to specialists where they live, New Mexico being a very rural state. Um, when did you first become aware of this problem? And how did you kind of uh, think that telemedicine could help in this solution? You know, I had um, become aware of this problem very soon after I came to New Mexico in 1993. And for 10 years or so, when I was treating hepatitis C in my clinic and even other liver diseases, I was always running into this problem that there were very long waits to see me. There was an eight-month wait to see me in my hepatitis C clinic. And people would drive hundreds and hundreds of miles each way to see me. And they would make 12 trips, for example, to get a course of treatment while they were getting a chemotherapy-like regimen with interferon and ribavirin. And what this was doing was um, it was making almost making it almost impossible to really uh, get treatment for poor people who were living in rural areas because they didn't have the resources to make 12 trips. First of all, they would have to wait eight months. And then because of this long delays, patients were having bad outcomes, bad outcomes in the form of end-stage liver disease, liver cancers, and even death. And only 5% of patients who needed treatment had actually received it. And so, um, so it, it was in 2003 that I had this idea of using the ECHO model to expand access to treatment. In 1993, <laughs> uh, that was, um, uh, you know, a different sort of world in terms of technology uh, and certainly, you know, uh, telemedicine and, and remote medical education. Um, how did you get started with Project ECHO, that, that sort of? early on and early days from a, from a really a technical standpoint? So the problem I was aware of since 1993, but Project ECHO actually started in 2003. And the reason it started at that time was it became obvious at that time that the technology was available for us to really expand access to treatment for hepatitis C and for many other diseases. And the main technology that came into play was um, broadband internet, that there was broadband internet and there was the ability to really um, connect with people on video conferencing in a one-to-many interaction. 
Okay, so it really was. You'd seen the need, and then it was kind of the, yes. the the technical hurdle was overcome, and the main one being sort of that broadband, high-speed access. Yes. Since you started the program, um, do you know how many providers you've touched in terms of education and potentially from there sort of patients treated over the, the course of Project ECHO? So Project ECHO in New Mexico in itself has touched close to three or 4,000 providers in New Mexico, wow. but this doesn't all, by the word provider, we don't mean necessarily doctor. Mm -hmm. um, maybe uh, 1,500 of them were clinicians, but then others could be, as I said, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurses, community health workers, pharmacists, uh, because we try and train all people to work at the highest level of their licensure. And so, uh, but worldwide, it is in, um, you know, perhaps 100,000 uh, providers, clinicians, and millions of patients have benefited because we are now in 24 countries. Uh, we are connected. Uh, 120 academic centers have launched Project Echoes. It's being done for 57 different disease areas. So... It is a rapidly expanding uh, project uh, in addition to the 120 or so that have launched the hubs that we call. Um, there's also 200 more uh, organizations that have signed collaborative agreements with us to launch Project ECHO. I, I would think that that many providers just in New Mexico is an impressive feat, uh, just considering the, the, you know, kind of the size of the state. Um, but worldwide, that's that's incredibly impressive. Um, congratulations. Um, you know, when when you look at the success that the programs had, and that's pretty phenomenal success in terms of the number of hubs and you know millions of patients that you've touched. Um, curious to learn a little bit more about how um, how it's driven in terms of new specialties or new conditions that go. You know, you know, if you started with hepatitis or hepatitis C, um, how are new conditions identified? And then how are those sort of added as, I don't know if they're called protocols or added to Project ECHO? Is that all done from your group in, in, at a University of New Mexico? Or are there other groups that have kind of taken on adding some of those new, um, new diseases and specialties? Yeah, many years ago, we described a few concepts. We said that if the disease was common, if management was complex, if new treatments were coming, if the disease had a high societal impact, if there were serious outcomes of, of the disease, if it was not treated, and if you had effective treatments, then that would be sort of a sweet spot for ECHO. And so we have, of course, um, based on this, uh, launched more than 20 ECHO projects in New Mexico. But our principal way to uh, have greater impact is to train other universities and other academic uh, hubs uh, we, we try and train them of how to do ECHO. And once they get trained, they have the freedom to really use the model for any number of additional conditions. And that's why it is being done for more than 50 healthcare conditions, even though we ourselves did not do that. So new protocols, new teaching materials, new case presentation templates are being developed all over the world by these academic hubs to meet their local needs for their populations. That's fascinating. 
Uh, do all of those protocols, templates feed back into a repository that are shared across those academic centers? Uh, that's correct. So as part of the collaborative agreement that other universities sign with us, because we give them our resources, our uh, software, our video conferencing platform, uh, we um, give them software to do Echo. We also give them access to all the all the tools and in the which we call Echo Box. It's basically Box which you're familiar with, but mm -hmm. we have a separate account where essentially all our partners around the world. Uh, bring in their case presentation templates, their uh, PowerPoint presentations, their uh, protocols, etc., and to share with the rest of the world. That's part of the agreements people have to sign to do ECHO. And of course, um, so that there is a repository for anyone in the world who wants to start a new ECHO, not to have to start from scratch, but sort of build on the work of their colleagues all, all over the world. Yeah, I imagine, yeah, as you start, as you add that many hubs and that many academic centers, you start to kind of hit, I imagine, some inflection point where just the, the amount of content and materials is, is just so exceptionally valuable that it makes it so much easier for new hubs and new specialties to, to sort of um, be added. So that's, that's pretty exciting. That's true. Yes, exactly. And, we, and the material in, in Box uh, for Echo is so much that we have just recently hired a librarian just for that purpose to catalog it and keep it organized so people can access it easily. Wow, that's incredible. Um, you, you, you alluded to something and, and, you know, I guess in terms of the, the content is obviously, you know, I imagine very valuable. Um, and then you alluded to some of the, the software and the, the tools and technologies that you use. I mean, you mentioned Box, obviously that's one, you know, sort of virtual hard drive technology, but um, in terms of the software that you use to do the video conferencing and uh, the remote communication and, you know, I guess the one-to-many education, um, not just you, but I guess all of your hubs use, are those um, all or mostly commercial or is there some custom work that you guys have done as a part of Project Echo? So we use Zoom, which is a commercial application for the whole world, um, uh, but there are some... Um, Software like what we call iEcho, which is like a customer relationship management system for Echo, we have created ourselves. So typically, unless we are able to get a worldwide license, uh, which is fairly unlimited for all our partners around the world, we typically don't use commercial software. We would then create it ourselves. But then, of course, there are companies like Box and Zoom who have bought into our mission and they have given us this worldwide license to use their technology for Echo so that whether you're in Sudan or Zambia or Bangladesh, you can use this technology uh, without having to pay extra fees, etc., so that you can um, help your underserved patients in your country. Wow, that's fantastic. We, we uh, at Datica, we use both Fox and Zoom, <laughs> so we know them quite well. Um, that's great that they bought into the mission in that way to, to, to help break down that barrier, at least, um, curious, I guess, from, a from, um, you know, from that technical perspective, other than, uh, you know, kind of licensing restrictions, like you were mentioning, uh, are there, are there other specific types of technical gaps that you see that are limiting, uh, telehealth, not just for echo, but generally for telehealth within, uh, the healthcare industry, are there technical deficiencies? 
You know, I think in general, in terms of uh, the video conferencing types of telehealth technologies, I think they are fairly well developed now. And uh, they are sort of plug and play, and I don't see that as a technical gap. I think in terms of remote uh, sensing, there probably need to be further progress so that, um, and I think this should happen in the next decade or so where there will be sort of computer chips that will be able to either be installed onto patients, into patients, or something of that sort. It will monitor all aspects of human function, which then will give more insight uh, by, um, I think another, um, I think one of the biggest problems I see in telehealth is really not a telehealth problem, but it is lack of interoperability of the electronic medical records in this in the U.S. healthcare system, which um, essentially if a patient doesn't belong to your particular hospital or practice or health, then you can't really see their electronic records. Um, other areas of progress, I think, for the future are big data and really interpreting all these new feeds that are coming in and creating intelligent outputs out of it, which are actionable. So there are many, many areas where I see a lot of progress will occur in the future. Have you guys overcome some of those interoperability challenges? You know, if you're getting data from these different sources and different um, sort of non-just encounter-based uh, records, um, and if, have you guys been able to integrate those into the clinical record as a part of the EHR and into the clinical workflow, which really largely exists within the EHR? Have you, have you guys been able to overcome some of that at New Mexico? No. <laughs> okay. That was a relatively short answer. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a source of great frustration for all of us who practice medicine um, that we as a nation can't get our act together to, um, to really develop a common platform where interoperability and um, ability to see the patient's data from any point of contact by the patient and their provider, um, that we can't get our act together to make that happen. Um, I think it's, it's really a very sad thing uh, to see that uh, because many, many other systems have already done that. The VA does it. Uh, in other countries, they've done it. And so, uh, and I think it leads to bad patient outcomes. So I'm, um, um, I, I, I'm hopeful that we can make greater progress in the future. Interesting. I, I guess <laughs> not to not to derail too much, but are you are you hopeful that in the same way you talked about sort of sensor technologies over the next ten years, um, you know, remote monitoring sensor technologies? Do you feel like you know there's some things on the horizon potentially around um, you know medical record access and ease of accessing records that that maybe will alleviate some of that pain as well? Yeah, I think there are some technologies probably coming in which are, which will make it easier to extract data and put it into uh, unified data sets. But at the end of the day, it is not a technological issue that will solve this problem. It is the will. I mean, the problem could be solved in, in one stroke by a law, which would say that beyond, let's say, 2020, no healthcare provider or no health system will get paid. No electronic medical record could exist unless 
there was this operability and it would get solved instantly um, if there was regulation like that. Short of regulation, you know, private interests of all different parties involved collide sometimes with the common good of interoperability and sharing and transparency and clear visibility across the world. So, um, and so for example, in the banking world, it's been solved, right? If you were a bank and you, uh, your bank was in Albuquerque, right? And you were in Boston and you couldn't get your money out of the machine, what would you do? You would immediately change your bank. <laughs> so, so, so therefore, um, we have to make it a business imperative for this to happen. And that, uh, since the major payer of healthcare in the United States is the government, that's what will need to happen here. Interesting. Interesting. Well, you know, we can, yeah, we're, we're, we're hopeful as well um, because we, we sort of see that same, uh, same challenge as new solutions come into the market and look to, to you know, gain adoption and, and utilization by patients and, and providers. So, um, so, you know, there are obviously implications, uh, you know, with, you know, with, with, with anything in healthcare having to do with healthcare data when it comes to privacy and security. Um, and I imagine as, as you guys are capturing data remotely or, or, or transmitting data, uh, you know, remotely, uh, whether it's being integrated within, the, within Project Echo or not, or sorry, within the EHR or not, um, that there are, you know, some privacy and security issues around that, that, that health data. Um, how have you guys thought about that or, or addressed that, uh, those issues around uh, security and privacy when it comes to, to data? So in a traditional uh, echo model, when the tele-echo clinic is going on, Travis, we don't really exchange verbally any information which has any patient identifier on it. So that means we don't talk about the date of birth. We don't talk about the name um, and so on and so forth. So as a result, the conversation that's going on with 20 clinicians from all different places on, on the same video conference the purpose of that is capacity building, training these providers to become experts. So it's like teaching them to, to fish rather than giving them fish. So what happens is that in the traditional teleeco clinic, there is no HIPAA issue. Now, of course, when we do research, for example, where we aggregate patient, individual patient data for that, all the necessary precautions of maintaining the, the sanctity of the electronic medical record, the sanctity of that data, getting the appropriate permissions from the uh, human research boards, all of that is required. But for the traditional ECHO model, HIPAA is not an issue for us. We don't at all ever deal with patient identified information in a teleecho clinic. So it's only really within the context of research and in those cases you kind of... Yeah, when we want to aggregate data for research, et cetera, then of course we would have to, you know, put in all kinds of systems to, you know, make sure that that happens. Correct. I see. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so sort of jumping back to uh, Project Echo and you talked, you, you talked a little bit about some of the scale that you've achieved um, in enabling, you know, new hubs to... to really build out 
um, and the, or leverage Project Echo to, to do this sort of remote uh, education and access, improve access. Um, you, you know, you, you read about you having this vision of, you know, touching a billion lives by 2025, um, you know, using what you talked about, the, the hub and spoke model. And can you talk about sort of how, uh, I mean, how you envision within the next, I guess, you know, eight years or so, uh, potentially getting to a billion lives? Sure. So the reason for the big number like a billion is the fact that, you know, we've done some research in the United States where we asked rural providers a very simple question. Um, we've asked them, is specialty access a major area of need for you? And we published this data, but they say 4.9 out of 5. Essentially, rural providers in the United States, where we have more specialists than any other country in the world, say they cannot access specialty care easily. So we actually believe that 6 billion people in the world don't have access to the right knowledge at the right place at the right time. And it's impossible to get the right care at the right place at the right time if you don't have the right knowledge. So millions of people die as a result of this, even when the appropriate resources may be available to actually provide the care, the knowledge isn't there, so they can't do it. They can't make the right diagnosis. They make the diagnosis, they don't know what the treatment is, and so on and so forth. So now, in order to really change the way the world works for these underserved patients, one has to really change the way knowledge is distributed. One has to democratize it firstly, but then uh, put an exponential type of distribution model on this knowledge so that it can keep up with the exponential growth in the knowledge that is occurring with the advancement of science and computing technology, etc. So um, it is for this reason that what we have envisioned is an idea in which the role of every specialist is to mentor other primary care clinicians to become as good as them. And they do that through this, what we, the ECHO model, which consists of technology, best practices, case-based learning, and outcomes tracking. And what we've been able to show in about 55 publications out of 18 universities, that this occurs very efficiently if you use the model of case-based learning where each person learns from each other, everybody is a teacher, everybody is a learner on that teleecho clinic which occurs every week, and very rapidly these people become specialists, so they become experts. And the other thing we've shown is that wait times go down dramatically. So in my case, the wait in my hepatitis C clinic went from eight months to two weeks over the course of a year and a half of doing echo. And other specialists are finding similar improvements in wait times. So once we reached here, now the question was, how do we get this model across the world? And so we said that, look, if we are asking specialists to democratize their knowledge, then we as ECHO, the ECHO Institute at the University of New Mexico, should democratize our knowledge of how to do ECHO. So what we do, the principal uh, work of the ECHO Institute is we replicate the model all over the world. And um, we teach other universities how to do it, other specialists of how to democratize their knowledge, how to expand capacity. And what happens is once we train a doctor 
in a rural area, first they treat their own patients, then their local partners in their, in their own practice refer patients to them. After that, everybody in the community starts going to them. And really, the whole community benefits from having that expert in their community. The interesting thing we are also finding is that the practice patterns of the neighboring doctors in the same practice also start improving because they learn from each other. And so as a result, it's sort of um, like throwing a stone in a pond, which is calm, and you can see waves going out for a long time. And that's what happens when you actually instill an amazing amount of knowledge in the head of a rural clinician. And so ECHO is expanding in two ways. First is the number of universities that are doing it is expanding. There are about 70 uh, hub projects with thousands of spokes in the United States. But then each hub is also expanding the number of diseases they're doing. And so as a result, our estimate is if we could train somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 universities, then it will change the way healthcare is delivered all over the world. And that's the goal of ECHO. Wow. That's a, I mean, it's a big goal. It's just, it's, it's impressive. We talked to, you know, we talked to and, and, and really, you know, spend a ton of time in this, in this area, but it's incredibly impressive the scale that you've achieved um, to date at, you know, like you said, 120 hubs and millions of patients. Um, it's, it's just incredible. So congratulations on that success and, and on ideally continued success to achieve that goal of a billion lives by 2025. Um, Thank you, Travis. Well, wanted to touch briefly um, on uh, the, the the recent <laughs> recent now a few months ago, um, Hims seventeen the the big conference that took place uh, back in in February. Um, and I'm curious if you saw some things that were particularly interesting from a telemedicine um, either implementation um, perspective, so use cases and things like that or from a technology perspective uh, when it comes to telemedicine, things you might've seen there that were particularly interesting to you? Travis, I'm gonna disappoint you by telling you that I didn't attend the conference. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I have you attended in the past? No, I have never attended a HIMSS conference. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, if, if, if I'm ever invited to come and speak there, I would certainly go and attend it, but I, it's not something that I, you know, I am uh, focused on many different other areas. And so I don't typically go for the conference. But if, okay. if, if the conference organizers felt that hearing about ECHO would be useful, I would be certainly happy to go and share it with uh, the participants. I've heard lots about the conference, but just because of time constraints, I haven't been able to go. I, so I'm, I'm curious then as a follow-up, um, are there particular conferences that you attend? And I'm curious because I'm, you know, I'm curious if they're more specialty specific, academic, um, uh, medical education. I'm, I'm curious the types of conferences that you do attend. I attend mostly uh, medical conferences where specialists uh, attend. So, for example, if I would go to the Liver Disease Society uh, where there would be 10,000 gastroenterologists and liver disease specialists. And I go and, and I speak there 
And the principal message that I'm trying to relay to these specialists is that if they want to have a bigger impact on the world, we have to change the way we think of our highly specialized knowledge and not monopolize it, but instead democratize it in a way that we become mentors to other people. Because currently, otherwise disparities in healthcare will continue to worsen. So let me give you an example, Travis. The breast cancer mortality rates between African-American women and white women were the same in the late 70s and early 80s. Now, more recently, African-American women are dying at 1.4 times the rate of white women. This is not biology that is making this difference. It's not poverty that is making this difference. It is fundamentally a lack of access to good care that is making this difference. And this is what happened is good new treatments came along and we were not able to get it to people who were underserved. And so this problem is only at its infancy right now. But I can see that unless we develop new ways of distributing this knowledge, this disparities in healthcare will continue to worsen. And so that's the key message I'm trying to get out to the world, that we need a new model. And the reason I often don't go to, let's say, a technology conference is because it's not a technological barrier to achieve this right now. It's a philosophical barrier, the same barrier that exists for electronic medical records <laughs> exists in this area. It's, it's about will. It's about desire. It's about uh, working for the better good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, curious, when you go to those conferences, are you seeing, you know, as you attend them year after year, you know, whatever the, the specific type of specialty conferences are or events, are you seeing some shift in terms of uh, openness or interest in, in leveraging technologies to, to ideally spread that specialty specific knowledge and, and you know, start to dwindle or, or reduce those disparities? Are you seeing more receptivity? I'm seeing a lot of receptivity. In fact, we are having a run on the system as far as Echo is concerned. <laughs> there, is, there is huge interest. There are a lot of people in the world lot of experts of all different kinds who believe that the current model in the United States and in many parts of the world cannot work, does not work, and we need to change it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the knowledge exists, the technology exists, the medicines exist, but we have to think differently of how they are deployed, how they are used, what goals are we trying to achieve, and yes, there is a lot of interest, and I'm very, very optimistic. In fact, we are definitely on our way to get to our goal of one billion people. Wow, that is that is incredibly exciting. Um, and again, I congratulate you because, yeah, it's a story. You know, I guess this is a story that maybe doesn't get enough press in the industry. But um, again, it's it's incredibly exciting to hear. Um, the scale and impact that you're already achieving. And then, you know, like you said, with this model of almost exponential growth, um, that ideally you, you kind of hit those targets, like you said, that you'll think you'll hit by 2025. Um, we started a little bit late, but we're just about out of time. Um, I want to make sure there are, are there any specific things that I may have missed that you think are, or maybe, you know, are relevant that, that you'd want to touch on before I let you go. Well, thank you, Travis. Uh, 
for the opportunity to speak to you and your colleagues, and I'm, I'm honored. Okay. Well, thank you again, um, Dr. Aurora, for your time. I, I really appreciate it. And again, I, I wish you the best uh, going forward and, and continued success with Project Echo. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Healthcare Innovators Podcast. Subscribe today.